All right, let's get started. What do you say? Yes, I'm ready. I hope you're ready. We're going to continue on in this whole series we've been talking about. There's more to the story. I counted the other day. We're roughly at mid-20s, pushing almost 30 that we've done uh, so far of how the Old Testament is pointing to Christ, the types and shadows in the Old Testament pointing to Christ. He's the fulfillment of uh, of all these things that we've talked about so far. And in the last three times we've met, we have went over the first... um, first three spring feasts uh, that the Jews would celebrate or uh, partake of. And if you remember the first one that we talked about, it was the Passover. The second one was Feast of Unleavened Bread. And last week was the Feast of First Fruits. And we, we, we know that the Passover was on the 14th, Abib 14th. Uh, that was the day that the true Passover lamb in Christ was uh, sacrificed and the blood was applied there. We see that in 1 Corinthians 5.7 is a good text. Uh, the day after the Passover was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Uh, we know that that was a time where they were to remove all of the, uh, the yeast or the leavened bread out of their house, which represents the removal of sin. And we know that Christ's body was sinless. Uh, it was broken. And as a result, He makes His people holy. We know that that comes about through immediate sanctification where he declares you righteous, Um, but then also that ongoing work of progressive sanctification in the life of a Christian to where we are to be conformed to the image of God more every day. We saw how that pointed to Christ, and then last week we talked about the Feast of First Fruits where that would have been celebrated on the Resurrection Sunday, Um, and in the Feast of First Fruits, uh, they would bring the first fruits of the barley harvest. And they would take a sheath of that and they would, the priest would wave it and it would be uh, uh, accepted by God and it would be to show a, a, a sign of uh, what the rest of the harvest was going to look like. And as Christ was the first fruits to be resurrected from the dead, as 1 Corinthians 15 says, all those that are His, um, we would also have that guarantee of resurrection from the dead um, as the harvest of His. So we we see how that's all taken, uh, come to pass. We see how all those have just sequentially uh, pointed to Christ. Now, we left off last week where I said that as soon as the the Feast of First Fruits, uh, as soon as that began, we were on a clock. The the calendar was uh, started because they were going to count down 50 days from the Feast of First Fruits to the next feast. And this is where we get the term Pentecost. We get that because Pentecost means 50, and after the Feast of First Fruits, it's 50 days before the next feast, which would be Pentecost. It's also known uh, as the Feast of Weeks because they would uh, count off uh, seven weeks um, leading to this 50 days. So that's kind of where we're at. So put that in your mind. The Passover representing Christ. The Feast of Unleavened Bread representing Christ. Feast of First Fruits representing His resurrection. And now we are 50 days after that last feast. And now we come to Pentecost. And it is a representation of the wheat harvest. Now this is important. We got to get this off the start. We got to get this right off the start to get the whole picture clearly is that now this feast celebrates the, the bringing in the first fruits of the wheat harvest. Now, why the wheat? Well, we're going to dive into that a little bit, um, and we're going to see some interesting stuff here that this feast is pointing to Christ. It was fulfilled, um, and we see it primarily in the New Testament in Acts chapter 2. But while you're in Leviticus, because we're going to read it out here in Leviticus 23, I want you to hold your uh, finger or thumb there in Leviticus 23, and I'd ask you to go to Colossians chapter 2 really quickly. We're going to read two verses here and then jump right back. But as we have done every time we've met to talk about these feasts or festivals, I want to draw your attention to the proof text that shows us, specifically with feasts and festivals, that they're pointing to Christ. There's many other places in the Bible that show that the Old Testament is pointing to Him, but when it comes to these feasts and festivals, the clearest indication we can find is in Colossians chapter 2, verse 16 and 17. Give everybody a chance to find it, and then I'll read it. It says this in Colossians chapter 2, 
verse 16 and 17. It says, Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or to a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. So there's our text. We know that. Feasts, festivals, Sabbath, Newman, all those things are just shadows pointing to Christ. Now what's interesting is that follows the verses that just have mentioned His death on the cross and His triumphant victory over the enemy. No coincidence there. So keep that in the back of your mind that the feasts, the festivals, they are a mere shadow. However, the substance is found in Christ. So with that being said, Leviticus 23, we'll start in verse 15, and we will read down. And if you look right above, um, we were there last week reading about the Feast of first fruits and how they were to bring that um, and wave offering before the Lord. And now we come to verse 15. Here's what it says. And you shall also count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, from the day when you brought in the sheaf of the wave offering, there shall be seven complete Sabbaths. So what he's saying there is 50 days, seven Sabbaths before the next one. You shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall present a new grain offering to the Lord. You shall bring in from your dwelling places two loaves of bread for a wave offering made of two tenths of an ephah. They shall be of fine flour baked with leaven as first fruits to the Lord. Along with the bread, you shall present seven one-year-old male lambs without defect, and a bull of the herd and two rams. They are to be a burnt offering to the Lord, with their grain offering and their drink offerings, and an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. You shall also offer one male goat for a sin offering, and two male lambs, one-year-old, for a sacrifice of peace offering. Then uh, the priest shall then wave them with the bread of the first fruits of the wave offering, with the two lambs before the Lord. They are to be holy to the Lord, for the priest. On this same day you shall make a proclamation as well. You are to have a holy convocation. You shall do no laborious work. It is to be a perpetual statute in all your dwelling places throughout your generations. When you reap the harvest of your land, moreover, you shall not reap to the very corners of your field, nor gather the gleaning of your harvest. You are to leave some them for the needy and the alien. I am the Lord your God. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first day, you shall have a rest, and a reminder by blowing of a trumpet's a holy convocation. You shall do no laborious work, but you shall present an offering by fire to the Lord. So now you see the next one that's coming. It's going to be the Feast of Trumpets. But in this text, in these few verses, you, you see what is being required, and you see what is being taught here in this, this Feast of Weeks or of Pentecost. Now, you've read some things in here. We're going to touch on them a little bit later, but you've seen what is happening here. And take your mind to the Feast of First Fruits. Fifty days later, Pentecost will come about. Now we find this in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 brings us to the New Testament discussion of the day of Pentecost. And we know that the day of Pentecost was a life-changing day on planet Earth. This was the day that the Holy Spirit of God was uh, poured out onto men and women that day. It was a day like no other. And we're going to discuss how this all comes to pass and how it comes to be fulfilled See, Jesus was the feast of first fruits. He was the first of the resurrection. And the Bible tells us that he spent 40 days on earth before he was taken into heaven. We find that in Acts chapter 1. It says in verse 3, they, to these, and we'll go back to verse 1, it says this, The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. So picture this. In the Old Testament, the Feast of First Fruits is the resurrection. 
Christ is the first of our, uh, the first fruits of resurrection. All that's are, that are His will be resurrected the same way. He's the one who led the way. 1 Corinthians 15 says that we'll do the same. He's the first to do that. And then we come to this text and we see that there's going to be a 50-day period. However, Christ is on earth for 40 days before He's resurrected. So now we start to begin to get a clearer picture of what is leading up to the day of Pentecost. That these disciples are told to go and wait in Jerusalem until they are given the gift from the Father. That gift is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And now, just from simple math alone, we know and we can, uh, we can know that there is a 10-day waiting period from the time that Christ ascends until the Holy Spirit is poured out. Can you imagine what those 10 days would have been like? They've walked with Him. They've been with Him. They've seen Him. They've heard Him. They've seen Him resurrected. They've seen His glorified body. They've seen all these convincing proofs. They've went with Him for three and a half years, and now He's left them, and He says, listen, just go wait. Don't run. Don't flee. Just go wait, because there's a gift that's going to be given to you, and what a gift it was. And we know that the gift of the Spirit is definitely of grace and by God alone. And so there's 10 days. They're in Jerusalem. Why are they in Jerusalem? Because there were three feasts or festivals that every male were required to go to if you were a Jew. It would have been the unleavened bread, the Passover feast there. Uh, it was to be uh, at, the, at this one at Pentecost and also the one that we had mentioned before, the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. So all the males would have been here. It was a, a happening time. It was uh, just filled to the brim of people from all different places coming and descending on Jerusalem. God knows what He's doing. They were all there when He, the Passover lamb, was crucified. They were all there when He was resurrected, and they were all commanded to be there in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And then 10 days after he ascended into heaven, which would have been 50 days from the Feast of First Fruits, Pentecost comes around. And what do we know about this? We know that he tells us in Acts chapter 2, verse 1, when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues, languages, as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd became together, came together and were bewildered, because each of them were hearing them speak in their own language. Not a mysterious language, not babble. They were speaking in their own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Why are, why are not these all who, these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, uh, Egypt, in the district or districts of Libya, around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jew and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them in our own tongue speaking of the mighty deeds of God, and they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, "What does this mean?" But others were mocking and saying they are full of sweet wine. That's where it leads up to. They think that what is going on here, they are drunk, and the Bible will go on to record. It says, listen, Peter's going to give this sermon. Peter's going to give the first sermon after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. He's going to tell them, listen, there's no drunkenness going on here. And he even says, listen, it's 9 o'clock. It's, the, it's what are you, too early for this, right? He says, no, this is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. This is God doing this as He promised He would. And then he goes and... And he quotes Joel there in Joel chapter 2, and he gives this amazing sermon about the power of God and what it's all about. And we see that at the very end of all of this, he tells us that that day, around 3,000 people were saved. I say that because that's going to come back to be important. What you just saw is... Pentecost, which represents the wheat harvest. In the Old Testament, it was to bring in the wheat. It was to bring in the wheat and present it 
there before the Lord. And the wheat that they were to bring, uh, it was the, the, like I said, the wheat harvest, and they were to bring two loaves of leavened bread. Now, see, this begins to say, well, that's backwards. We just read of the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which was sinless and pure, get it out of your house. And now we have this feast, which is saying, listen, bring in the wheat, and the two loaves are to be with leaven. What does he mean here? Why is this the case? And now have we just compromised the whole thing? Is there discrepancy here? Well, what you've read there is amazing. And what you've read there is a description of you. And we'll get to that in just a minute. But it was to bring the wheat harvest in and present it. That's the whole point of this. We just read that back in Leviticus 23. And you're saying, well, what does this all have to do with this? Well, here's what it means. The reason that wheat is so vital to this story is because in the New Testament, and primarily when we look into Matthew chapter 13, we see that God's people are referred to as wheat. So when we talk about this wheat harvest that is going to be, and the Pentecost is going to be the first fruits of that wheat harvest as a way to say, hey, look, here's the first of this new harvest. But the whole wheat is going to be represented as every believer. Let's go to Matthew 13 and let's look at this. You're going to see this whole harvesting and wheat comes to play here in this parable that he presents. And you have to ask yourself, is it a coincidence that they had to bring wheat to this Pentecost? No, it's not, because this is pointing to Christ. In Matthew chapter 13, starting in verse 24, we hear the parable of the tares among the wheat. And then in verse 36, he explains it. So let's read it first. And I want you to keep in your mind one thing. The, the elect of God, the people of God are the wheat. And those who are not are the tares. And keep in the back of your mind that this new, this, this new grain offering that's being brought in is wheat. You ha we have to make this connection. Jesus presented another parable to them saying, The kingdom of God may be prepared, compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. The slave of the landowner came and said to them, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. The slaves said to him, Do you, do you want us then to go ahead and gather them up? But he said, No, for while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. This is a clear text of, no secret rapture, and seven years later, he comes back, and then a thousand more years. Look at what he says. He says, no, for while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow until the harvest. Don't pull one up before the other. Let them both grow to the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them into bundles to burn them up. That's the eternal punishment. But gather the wheat into my barn. How amazing is that? That now we have the day of Pentecost, and he says, listen, this is going to be the first fruit of the, new the wheat harvest, and the wheat is going to be the people of God. It's going to be those who are saved by the power of God. But you see here, the wheat are gathered up into the barn, and the tares are not. Let them both grow, but I'm going to gather my wheat, and we're going to burn the tares. Then he goes over to verse 36 of Matthew 13, he explains it. Then he left the crowds and went to the, ha the house, and his disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. And he said, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man, and the field is the world. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. We'll come back to that later too. 
So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness, and will throw them into the furnace of fire. If you remember our study of Daniel and or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that we see that language similar, that when they are being rescued from that fire, that furnace, it is the same imagery here that we get in Matthew 13. And they will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's the tares. But what about the wheat? It says, Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. You see the imagery that's going on here. That Pentecost and the first fruits of this wheat harvest is pointing to the children of God. Those are the ones who would have the righteousness of Christ imputed. Those would be the ones who would enter the kingdom of their Father. He, those are the ones by the, the, the sheer grace and the gift that He allows uh, His people to call Him Abba Father. This wheat is talking about the believer, and that is what is being represented by bringing this wheat harvest into Pentecost. The Holy Spirit has just been outpoured, and now here comes the new wheat harvest. And we see that those 3,000 people are going to be the first fruits of that wheat harvest. And if you are a Christian, guess what? You've been called and you've been saved, then you're in that harvest as well. You're part of the wheat. But the first fruits of that harvest, the first fruits of that new church is what? The 3,000 that were saved at Pentecost. You see the beauty of the story, the complexity of the story? This is all fulfilled in Christ. It's 50 days after He resurrected. He's the first fruits of those who resurrect through His power. And He, by the working of His power, the 3,000 people that were saved here on this day were the first fruits of the wheat harvest. And that harvest has just continued to grow and grow and grow up to this day. And there will be a come a time where there's no more wheat, there's no more to be gathered in. And then the great harvest will come, and we'll see that here in a little bit as well. Now, let's get back to, they were required to bring two loaves of leaven. We see that in Leviticus 23, 17. What do we know about leaven? Leaven, 90% of the time in the Bible, speaks of sinlessness. It tells us that Christ was unleavened. He was the, uh, the body that was broken. It was sinless. He was sinless. Uh, that when they were to remove the leaven from their house in the Old Testament in the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that represents sin and how we're to be made holy before God and through sanctification continue to rid ourselves of sin. That's what that means. And we see that in the New Testament that, that the Pharisees, their sin was hypocrisy. That was their leaven. And you see that it's small, but they can explode and, and multiply exponentially quick. So if we are made righteous by God, if we are declared blameless in His sight through justification, then why in the world are we bringing two leaven loaves to this harvest? Well, here's how that works. There's two avenues that we can go here. Sure, if you're a Christian now, you're declared righteous and holy in the sight of God through justification. As Martin Luther would say, simul justus et peccator, Coop's not here. He loves to say that. That means simultaneously just, but simultaneously we still fall in sin. We are not righteous on our own. We're righteous by the imputed works of Christ. So when you and I are, are drawn by God before He saves us, what is your state? None righteous? No, not one? Enslaved to sin? You have no merit on your own? There's nothing in you? And you see that as the wheat is going to represent all these people that are going to be coming to Christ in this harvest, how do they come? Full of sin. They don't come unleavened, do they? They leave unleavened, but they don't come unleavened. This is the state of us. That as He calls us and He saves us and He rescues us and He justifies us and He declares us righteous, that's not who we are on our own and that's not how we are before His salvation on us. Think about you. Think about, I think about myself. Think about your condition before Christ saved you. There was nothing in you. The merit that you had in your life would allow you to stand with your mouth closed before God and be held in utter 
judgment, and condemnation. That's the state of every wheat. That's the state of everyone that he saves. He, he tells us in John 3, one of my favorite scriptures. It, it, yes, we're going to go past John 3, 16, because there are more verses in chapter 3 of John. There's good ones before John 3, 16, and there's good ones after John 3, 16. But at the ending of John, and we've mentioned this before, that he tells us that our state before Christ is so hopeless. It says that light has come into the world, but the, the world hated light. They didn't want to come to the light. They can't come to the light because their deeds are evil. So how does one that can't seek God, that has no righteousness, who hates the light, how does that person ever come to the light? We've heard this a few times, but I think it's okay to say it again. We go back to creation. You know, the effectual call of God when he looked in at creation and he said, let there be light. Do you know what came when he said, let there be light? There was light. There was not a discussion. The light wasn't debating on whether or not he was going to come into being. No, 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 no. God said it. It came to pass. That's the fiat. That's the effectual call of God. Now we have this same imagery of our souls before Christ. We hate the light. We don't come to the light. There's nothing in us that wants to come to the light. But 2 Corinthians 4 tells us that the same voice that spoke into the darkness and said, let there be light, comes to the souls of his wheat and just as he declared light into creation, he speaks into the soul of his people. And he says, let there be light. And you know what happens when the creator of the world calls into a soul and says, let there be light? You know, don't you? There's light. That's how you come. But before, you are hopeless. No righteousness. Hostile. Enemies. Hiding in the dark can't come to him on your own without his call and his mercy and grace. That's your state. That's why the wheat that is brought, these bread loaves are leavened because that's how we are before he rescues us and brings us into this harvest. But I think it goes deeper than that as well. And I think the last time we mentioned this, well, let me say this real quick before I forget. Like I, I had mentioned it, I think previously, but we come with no righteousness. But the greatest thing that we could ever hear as human beings is that God looks at us and says, I declare you righteous. That's what justification is. Catch it. It's not that you are righteous on your own merit, but God looks at you, and I always use the example of the judge who takes the gavel, and he slams it down and he says, I declare you righteous. And if the sovereign, authoritative rule of all the universe declares you righteous, I think it goes back to Romans 8. Who bring a charge against God's elect? No one. Why? Because it is God who justifies who there is then to condemn. What can separate us from His love? No one. And as long as God is living, as long as He's living, He's justifying us. Oh, and by the way, He's the feast of first fruits. He's raised from the dead. He's living forever. So He's always interceding for His people. Can you imagine that? That's the, that's the mystery of justification that you come to Him with no righteousness and you still have no merit on your own, but the sovereign God of this universe would declare you righteous. You and I are that leavened bread that come to Him and He sets us free. He imputes His righteousness to him, us and now we're declared holy in His sight. It's beautiful when you see this. So we have to go to the Old Testament. We say, why are they bringing the wheat and why are they bringing the two loaves well, it's the story of your redemption. Because remember, this day is the, it's the start of the harvest, which the believers are the wheat. Now, let's go a little farther. I mentioned this, I think. The, we were maybe at Lynn and Butch's house last time. We mentioned the feedings, the miracles of the five and the four thousand. And why is there two loaves here? I believe this is also symbolic of the Jew and the Gentile. Because we had mentioned that in Matthew's account... Um, we see in Matthew 14 and we see in Matthew 15 these back-to-back -back accounts. The first one we see is the feeding of the 5,000. And I, we had mentioned it before that the way that this gets taught a lot is this. It's God can take the little that you have and make it big. And can He do that? Yes, He can. He can do that. He, if He's in the business of taking things that are weak and small and using them, He came to the right guy with me. Because that's what he's doing. But that is not about that. 
Because we see in Matthew 16, when the disciples, they're, they're confused and they're, they're trying to ponder all this, Christ directs their attention to not the bread, not, not necessarily how many started there, and He doesn't draw their attention to the fish, but He draws their attentions to the number of loaves of bread that are left in the baskets. That's, that's why would He do that? He keeps driving this point. He says, look, look at the first feeding. How many basketfuls of bread were left? He goes to the second. How many basketfuls of bread were left after the feeding of the 4,000? And that's where all this ties in of the bread. Not only do we come sinful, not only does He rescue us in our leavened state, if you will, and then He cleans us up and He declares us righteous, and now we're unleavened in His eyes. But He's also the bread of life for the Jew and the Gentile. How much hostility was in those groups? We've labored that point for months. In the feeding of the 5,000 in Matthew chapter 13. I'm sorry, that's incorrect. Don't go to Matthew 13. You'll never find or Don't go to Matthew whatever I said. Go to Matthew 13, or 14. I'm sorry. I will get it right. We know it's in Matthew, whose name was Levi. He was a tax collector. Matthew, please go to verse 13 of chapter 14. You'll see the story unfold. Chapter 14 of Matthew, you'll see the feeding of the 5,000. Now, this is just one account. There's other passages in the Gospels that we get some more of this information for, but there's a quick reference here because you'll see them go back to back. Now, if you do a little study on this and go to the other Gospels, you will see that the feeding of the 5,000 we know this that this only counts the men. Scholars, people could estimate 15, 20, 25,000 people here. However, that's not the main point here. The main point is where does it take place? It takes place in a Jewish area. That's important. It takes place in a Jewish area. And after all the multitude has been fed, and remember Jesus is going to go later and say, hey, look at the basketfuls of bread. How many basketfuls of bread are left in the feeding of the Jews, or in the Jewish area? There's 12. Why is there 12? Well, we know that we see in heaven, in the gates, in the foundation, there's 12 of the apostles, and we see that there's the 12 tribes of Israel, the sons of Israel. So we see that 12 is this number representing Israel in the Old Testament. It's representing the tribes of Israel, the sons of Israel. We are seeing that that 12 is being uh, shown here in the feeding. So the first feeding is in a Jewish area, and the number of baskets of bread are 12, symbolizing the Jew. That story is saying that, listen, he is the bread of life to the Jew. Amen, he is. But the story doesn't stop there. I'm thankful that there was another feeding, because if he stops there, we may be in trouble. Because the mystery of the gospel is that he is grafted in Gentiles. And then we go to the next uh, miracle, the feedings there in Matthew 15. And we see that in verse 32. Again, there's other passages in the other gospels that you can find. But if you study this out, this location was a little different. This feeding was not taking place in a primarily Jewish area. This was taking place in an area of the Gentiles. There's no coincidence in that. And then we draw our attention to the number of basketfuls that are left. The first one, which represented the Jews, there was 12. And the ones that represented the Gentile is how many? There's seven. What is seven? Seven is his number of completion. And it's also interesting that we see in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 and 2, that when the children of Israel, they go into the promised land, there are seven Gentile nations there that are in the promised land when they arrive. It's the completion. It's His work. The wall of hostility is done. It, it is the grafting in of the Jew and the Gentile. So not only is this wheat harvest, it, it's being brought with two loaves representing the Jew and the Gentile, but they're also coming in leaven because that's our sinful state before Christ rescues us. This is the depth. You see, we have to be careful not just to say, oh, they brought two loaves. Boring. Keep moving. We have to say, well, okay, what's this all about? Wheat harvest, who cares? Grain's grain, right? The depth of the story is so beautiful because remember the first text we talked about. All these feasts are mere shadows. What's the substance? 
It's in Christ. To fly by these feasts is to fly by Christ. It's to look it over and miss the mystery and the beauty of these verses. So we get, we're starting to see the picture. 50 days after the resurrection, here comes Pentecost. This is the day where the Holy Spirit uh, is poured out on the earth. This is the mark of the, 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 the New Testament church. This is the start of the new harvest, if you will. And then on the day of Pentecost, those 3,000 are the first fruits of that new harvest. The two loaves represent uh, the leaven state, which are sinfulness. And the two loaves also represent the grafting of the Jew and the Gentile. However, there's also another thing that we can glean from the bread being leavened. Because I had made the mention earlier that 90% of the time when we see leaven in the Bible, it's representing sin. However, there is a time where it does not represent sin. It is used to describe the kingdom of God. We find this, interestingly enough, in Matthew 13, in between the telling of the parable of the wheat and between that and the explanation of the parable of the wheat. Now, isn't that coincidental? What does that mean? What is, what is leaven being used in this context? Well, just as a little bit of leaven or yeast in the dough and the bread can make it grow and expand quickly. He says that's the call to rid ourselves of sin in our life because just a little bit of sin can grow like yeast and leaven and can blow up. And before we know it, it's wreaked havoc. <clears throat> that's what he tells us. But he also says that as quickly as that sin can grow, the kingdom of God is also like leaven in that sense. That it started small and it grew. Think about the church in the New Testament. Think about how many people were commissioned. He took 12 disciples he started with there in his earthly ministry. And look at the wheat harvest now. Look how small it may have started. And look what it has grown into. This is what the kingdom of God does. It, it grows and it, it multiplies by the power of God, by His sovereign will. This is the other imagery that we can get here. Not only does it represent our sinful state before Christ saves us, the two loaves not only represent the Jew and the Gentile and Him being the bread of life for both of those and to be the leaven that He would make pure, but it also represents that as this day of Pentecost was the start of the wheat harvest, it would start small with 3,000 people and grow to how, how many now? We don't know. But it started there and it's grown by the power of God. And we see that. That's why those 3,000 people are so important to the story because they are the first fruits of that wheat harvest. I'm thankful that I'm in that wheat I'm thankful that He rescued me out of my leaven, my sinful condition, and made me righteous in His eyes. And I'm thankful that He doesn't stop there, that not only am I declared righteous before God, He, he works in us through sanctification to continue to be more conformed to His image as we grow and walk on this world. Now you remember, we talked about in this parable here in Matthew 13, that, that the harvest of the wheat and and the tares would be at the end of the age, and it would be involving angels. Well, let's go to Revelation chapter 14. And let's get a better imagery of this. He's going to use a harvest example here, and then he's going to use a grape example here. But the point we want to see is the harvest here. Here's what he says. He talks about the reapers. We saw the reapers in Matthew 13. It would be the end of the age. He says, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, in verse 14. And sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man, having a gold crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, because the harvest of the earth is ripe. Then he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. And the other angel came out of the temple with it, which is in heaven. And he also had a sharp sickle. Then another angel, the one who had power over fire, came out from the altar, and he called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, 
Put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth because the, her grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and he threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood came out from the winepress up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. He's talking about the reapers, that there will be a great harvest that day. There will be a harvest when God and His angels come and they start to reap the harvest. And what is going to happen? There's going to be the wheat and there's going to be the tares. There's going to be the believer and the non-believer. They're going to be the child of God and the children of the devil. There, there's no in-between. There's only uh, option A or B. There's no in-between on this. And when He comes to reap and put the sickle to the harvest, we go back to Matthew 13 in the parable. These people here, their fate is death. Their fate is spiritual death. Their fate is eternal damnation in hell. But what about the wheat? What about the wheat? We just read it in Matthew 13. The wheat, they're the ones who are considered righteous. And it says they will shine like the sun. And they will enter into the kingdom of their Father. The same Father that while on this earth we've been given the privilege to call Abba Father. By His grace alone. It is the wheat that will be gathered to enter the kingdom of God. It will be the wheat who are righteous, not on their own merit, but again on the righteousness of Christ. We can't go a service, can we, without talking about the imputed righteousness of Christ. You can't. Because if you, if you don't talk about the imputed righteousness of Christ, then it leaves you, and if it's all about you, then you're hopeless. You have no hope. The wheat, before he saves them, are leavened. Sin-filled, no righteousness. And boy, we still fail, don't we? We still sin. We still fall short of his glory. But in his imputed righteousness to us, he takes that leavened bread. And He makes us holy. That's why the Bible says over and over again that when He looks at us, that we are considered blameless and holy, without spot, without blemish, without wrinkle in His eyes. Because when we are looked at, we, see, we are seen by the righteousness of Christ. That's what the wheat has. The wheat is resting in that righteousness. That is why it says that they can enter that kingdom. But don't think for a second you got there on your own. Don't think you could ever merit that righteousness. Go back to that leavened bread that was being presented at the, at the Feast of Pentecost. That's the hopeless state you have. And without the power of the Holy Spirit, you see, it was the power of the Holy Spirit that changed lives that day. It is the power of the Holy Spirit that brings about regeneration, brings about redemption. It is that power that was released and outpoured on planet Earth that day. It's that power that those 3,000 loaves of leavened bread were sanctified and made right before God. It is that same power that brought every believer into new birth. That's why you're wheat. That's the importance of this feast. So step back and look at it. Look what's happening here. Look at the work of Christ, the Passover lamb was sacrificed, and His blood was shed. That perfect, sinless body, that unleavened bread of Christ, His body was perfect and sinless. That was the bread that was, the body that was broken on the cross. And as He was perfect and pure, He now puts imputed righteousness and holiness on His people. But it didn't stop there because if he's not resurrected, then we have no living hope and he can't intercede for us. He was raised again for our justification. So we have the Passover lamb. We have the feast of unleavened bread, but then we have him resurrected from the grave, which is the feast of first fruits. And if you are a wheat, then you know what he's guaranteed you? You've got a living hope. That as he's been resurrected, so will you. That's why the resurrection is so important. You can look at that and say, will this ever come to pass? Is it just a fairy tale? No, you'll look at Christ. And if the power of the Holy Spirit that raised him that day, he's the first fruits of the resurrection. And we're the remaining of that. And just as he was raised from the dead, we've been raised by spirit to spiritual life, but we'll also be resurrected with a physical resurrection. 
And then 50 days passes. And after his death, and after his burial, and after his resurrection, 50 days passed. And here comes Pentecost. And the greatest gift that was ever given to mankind is outpoured in the Holy Spirit. And it just so happens to be that that's the feast that this unleavened bread was brought to the Jew and to the Gentile. And they may have come in that way, but those 3,000 people who were the first fruits of the harvest of wheat, they didn't leave that way. They left with the imputed righteousness of Christ, holy in the eyes of God. And that's the same story to every one that he saves. That, that we are that wheat harvest. And one day we'll be gathered up with him. And we will enter that kingdom. In the light of God's radiant glory. will light it all. Every other light will fail to compare to that glory. And the only reason that this old wheat is there is because of the sovereign mercy of God changing me, sanctifying me, and justifying me. And that Holy Spirit that was poured out here, it says that that is a seal and that's a promise. Ephesians 1, 2 Corinthians 1, Ephesians 4. There's so many verses in the Bible. 2 Corinthians 5, it tells us that, that when you are sealed with the Holy Spirit, it's a guaranteeing you of that inheritance so that resurrection is yours. And God doesn't lie. You see the beauty in these feasts? It started with Passover, unleavened bread. Here comes the first fruits of the resurrection, but it doesn't stop there. And that Holy Spirit that was poured out that day, if you're a believer, if you're wheat, it's indwelling in you now. What greater hope do we have? The hopelessness that we have, it all goes to God. It's, it's all Him. It's from Him. It's through Him. And it's to Him. To God alone be the glory. I hope you can see the beauty in these feasts. I hope you can see the story of Pentecost. That this wheat harvest was being brought. That was just the start. That he called me to there too. Let's go back to Colossians chapter 2 really quickly. And we'll end with this. Colossians chapter 2. Verse 16. You want to read it? And 17. Says this. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to a food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. I hope that means more to you now than it ever has. And I hope you, you, when you read Acts chapter 2 that you never look at it the same. I hope you understand that's the starting of the wheat harvest. And I hope that you're in that harvest. I hope you're in that wheat. Because the alternative is no good. It is unimaginable the wrath and the fury not being in this harvest of wheat. I'll say this in closing. I want you to just think about the complete picture. Look what happened. It all started with the death of Christ. He had to be perfect. That righteousness that we've talked about that's imputed, if he's not sinless and perfect, then we have no hope or righteousness to be imputed to us. And if he stays in the grave, we have no hope. And if he doesn't come and rescue us and send the host, then we have no hope. You see, everything is predicated on him. It is Christ and Christ alone. To him be the glory. I hope that you can see this. And you know what I'm going to say next. 
that we can maybe come together on two things. Can we agree on two things tonight? I hope that we can always agree on these. Number one, that the Bible is so much better than what we've made it. And number two, I hope that you can see there's more to the story. Let's pray. Father, how do we even thank you for your word? How do we even comprehend the depth of your redemptive plan? God, how do we even begin to thank you for what you've done in rescuing us, rescuing us from the kingdom of darkness and bringing us into the kingdom of your Son? Lord, let our minds go back to the Passover lamb who was sacrificed and his blood was applied. Lord, let us thank you for being that Passover lamb. Thank you for being sinless and that that sinless body would be broken to make us holy and righteous in your eyes. And God, thank you that it was impossible for death to hold you because the wages of sin is death, but you were sinless. You took on our sin. You took the sin of your people. That's why death couldn't hold you, because it can only hold sin, and you are sinless. And that's why you tell us it was impossible. God, we thank you. Thank you that you have been raised from the dead. Lord, to be seated on the right hand of the Father. Lord, and not just to sit there, but to intercede for us, to intercede for your people. Lord, thank you. Lord, thank you that you came and, Lord, you have given us the gift of the Holy Spirit. We couldn't earn it. We couldn't merit it, God, but you have given it to us. And, Lord, we're thankful that your gifts are irrevocable. Thank you, Lord, that you have indwelled us with you. You've sealed us, God, by your mercy and mercy alone. God, thank you for this feast. Thank you for the harvest of wheat. Thank you, God, that by your mercy alone, you have changed me, saved me, rescued me. So one day, I could be raised with you to enter that kingdom, that heavenly Jerusalem, to be with you forever. Lord, to you be all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.